Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Sleep, never retreat. Welcome to the Road to the Trials podcast, where we take an insider's look into the training and racing of some of America's best runners as they prepare for the Olympic track trials in June. And we are presented all season by Coros Wearables. I love my Coros watch. It's my favorite GPS watch that I've ever worn, and I've worn them all. So today's episode is with Olivia Baker. I was so excited to talk to Olivia again, and I say Olivia again because while this is her first episode here on the Road to the Trials podcast, I actually recorded an episode with her last summer on the Rambling Runner podcast, and that's actually going to be part of today's episode. So In the first part of the episode, the first half, uh, roughly, Olivia and I talk about what she's been up to since last summer. And then we basically add on to the episode with, you know, the entire conversation that we had last summer, which was basically her history as a runner. So there's no need to kind of recreate that because, frankly, her history as a runner hasn't changed (laughs) since last summer. So it was really nice to catch up with her to see what's been going on over the last six to eight months And I'll tell you what, with Olivia, so much is going on. And not only she is an extremely talented runner, um, as you'll hear about in this episode, but she is just, it's just so insightful. I just love interacting and talking to Olivia Baker. And I have no doubts that after you listen to this episode, you will feel the exact same way. So let's get into my conversations with Olivia Baker. Hello, Olivia, and welcome to the Road to the Trials podcast. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. I was about to say welcome back because you were a guest previously on the Rambling Runner podcast. I stopped myself short because this is a new show, but it is nice to have you um, back on a podcast episode because that first conversation we had was so much fun. And I am even more excited to follow you and your journey into the summer on the way to the trial. So first of all, thank you so much for being a part of this project. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So our previous conversation, which is going to be kind of stitched on to the back of this current conversation, really dives into your running history and and so many things. And that that conversation was really well received. It was an extremely popular episode from July 2020. So uh, people are are kind of tuning into Road to the Trials. You've heard a couple different episodes already. This is a little different because we've already had the same conversation in a sense, that I just had with, say, Kira D'Amato and Frank Lara. Um, But I do want to touch on what's happened in your recent past and really talk about where you are now and what your, you know, your, your thoughts are moving forward. So I guess first things first, when was the Olympic Games first, like, a dream of yours? Wow. It has been a dream for a long time. I think since I was maybe 11 or 12, when I, when I first felt like I, I saw a talent in, in myself in track and field is when it first became something that I was targeting. Uh, I tell people, people who've known me for a long time know that there've been two things that have really been on my heart for a while, uh, becoming a doctor and going to the Olympics. So it's been a long time. Now, was there any specific athlete or athletes that you, no, maybe you like. I want to be like them, or maybe even less so that you just really enjoyed watching. You know, when, when viewing the Olympics for the first time, or when you really got into it. Yes, I loved watching Alicia Montano run. Uh, she's such a gutsy runner. Always the type of runner who's not afraid to take it out hard, 
and and get after it in a race. So she was always a p- pleasure to run to watch. Um, I always enjoyed watching Sonia Richards Ross. She, especially in her four by four legs, I remember an iconic moment of hers uh, walking down the Russian team. I believe it was at the world. I don't think that was an Olympic moment. I think it was at the World Championships, and I want to say it was twenty thirteen, or. It might have been 2011. I can't remember the year exactly, but I remember the moment and watching it on TV. And um, I've also got to give a shout out to my current training partner, Natasha Hastings. I remember it's a, it's surreal for me still growing up watching her on TV and now, you know, I'm kind of at the beginning of my career and, and on the tail end of hers getting to train alongside her is is really surreal and something that has lived up to the hype. Um, over the past couple of years that I've had this opportunity. So even before you were a standout on the track, you really kind of, your viewing preferences like went to the track when you were watching the Olympics and, you know, international uh, meets like that? Absolutely. I mean, track was, is, I think is probably the most popular Olympic sport. And um, it's been one that I've always enjoyed watching at the Olympics. Well, I'm right with you with that one. That's for sure. That's true. I would try to think back. Like when I was, you know, if I think back like 15 to 20 years, like what about the Olympic moments? It is funny because you think, you know, track is always right there. And then swimming always gets a lot of pub and then gymnastics and figure skating. I feel like those are like the big four with Olympics that always like end up grabbing, especially in the U.S. Like the U.S. has been so dominant in a lot of those that it's always gotten a lot of airtime. Absolutely. All right. So when did the Olympics shift for you from a dream to a legitimate goal that you had in your sights? Ooh, I think it shifted to a legitimate goal in high school. Um, when I was running in high school, it there was a shift in my mentality that occurred. I think in the beginning, I was just driven by wanting to just win a race, whatever it took uh, to win a race was enough for me, but I'm I'm really thankful to have had a high school coach and Coach Morgan, who pushed me to do more in high school. She she encouraged me and said, "Hey, you know, I see a talent in you. I believe that you can do more than just run to win a given race. You know, you have the potential to run some really fast times too." And I think towards the tail end of high school, maybe my junior and senior year and into college there was more of a shift in my mentality from just wanting to get out there and win a race to actually wanting to put down fast times too and and run with the best of the best. So I would say at, at the end of high school was when I, I really felt like I that became a, a legitimate goal in my mind. And is that also when you were, you know, starting to go into international competitions? And obviously when you're being recruited by Stanford for track, like that's, you know, a pretty legitimate moment as well in terms of like, hey, if the best of the best are recruiting me, what does that mean from a potential standpoint? Yeah, I I mean, 2017 was the first year that I competed at internationally with the world junior team. Uh, that was in Ukraine. And um, yeah, I, I think in having competing with the world junior team, having a college like Stanford recruiting me uh, really did 
go into making me feel like that Olympic dream was a, a legitimate, not just a dream, but a legitimate goal to to get after. All right. So let's talk about 2020. So we, we spoke kind of halfway through. And that was when so much was unsettled and it was really like meets were popping up, but you didn't get a ton of notice. And, and it was just a, a really wild time, um, especially because there was this this dichotomy between and understandably. So it was like, say, like the marathoners who would need months and months to kind of prepare and, and get ready, whereas for some of the, the track athletes. It seemed like it was, again, just from an outsider's perspective. And please correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed like it was a little bit more uh, spontaneous at least from a scheduling perspective. So what was, say, the back half of 2020 like for you, not only in terms of where you were able to compete and test yourself, but also how your training went? Yeah, it's 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 been a challenge, to say the least. But we spoke in July, and then after that, I had a couple of very low-key races in August just to kind of see where I was. I ran a 500, a 600, and, and an 800 at a meet in Prairie View. Uh, I ran that was okay. one of the craziest meet like race results I've ever seen in my life, by the way. There's like certain people who would like lose a race and then they would like win a different race. It was like a wild scene like, looking at the race results. It was, yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when a bunch of people get together and you don't really know where you are in training uh, <laughs> because the last month or so had been pretty tumultuous. But yeah, I, it was a fun time. I ran okay. Um, and then after that, took some time off at the end of August into September and then got back to training. Fortunately, by end of September, I had more of a clear idea of what things were going to look like with COVID. Um, well, or so I thought I did. And then the winter came and things got even worse. But I think... In that time, I, I did have a clear idea more so on on planning. So one of the things I did this year, since I wanted to be home in the Northeast for the winter, is I spent my whole fall training block on the East Coast from September through early, like right after New Year's. I did all of my fall training on the East Coast so that I could be with my family through the holidays two of the first coaches I ever had in track and field, coaches Maurice and Deneen Cooper, co-wrote the plan for this period alongside my dad and my mom to a lesser extent. They were the eyes and ears on the field almost every day, helping me execute and tweaking the plan when necessary until I came back to Texas in January. So that was one major change. Uh, another thing, again, looking at the COVID situation, my coach and I decided early on to skip indoor season, which has been tough because, again, growing up on the Northeast, I love indoor season. The environment, the running on the bank track. And especially for like your events, like that's what indoor season's made for. Like forget yes. the 5K indoor, like that's ridiculous. But like your events, like the 800, the 400, like that's perfect for indoor. Right. Absolutely. I love indoor, and so it's it's been hard for me to watch and, and not compete, but I know that I've got to stick to the plan. You know, a coach has a plan. We have a direction that we're heading, and indoor just wasn't a part of it this year. I mean, especially with the way that things are, things have kind of gone downhill and are fortunately getting better now, but 
hadn't been so great in the winter. Uh, I think for me, it was the right decision to forego indoor season. All right. And who's your coach? Coach Daryl Woodson. Okay. Um, all right. So where does your fitness stand now? I feel great. Uh, I think one of the things about forgoing indoor season that has been a benefit to me was just getting strong. Uh, I put in a lot of mileage or a lot is relative, a lot for me of mileage <laughs> in the, in the training period. I put in, you guys may laugh at this, but I, I put in some consistent 30 mile weeks. Uh, that was a, a lot, a lot more than I have ever put in for me. So, and we talk about this much later in the podcast because we, we, this was a, ba- a major point in our conversation in July. So if you're like, wait, I don't get the joke. Just wait about half an hour. We'll, we'll dive completely into that topic. <laughs> yes. Yes. You'll hear more about that. But yeah, I, I put in some 30 mile weeks. I feel like one of the shifts in my distance training this year was going to a more heart rate based model um, that I think helped guide me in my strength training zones and help me get, get stronger through this fall training period and make sure also kind of safeguard against overtraining on those easy run days too. Um, and now that I'm, I'm back in Texas, the weather was supposed to be nicer. Uh, but we are currently in the midst of an ice storm and are expecting snow actually on Monday, but for the most part, until this point, it had been nicer. Uh, starting to do some speedier things in training, still keeping that distance aspect as a part of things. I know for me, again, that the speed will come because that's, that's a strength of mine. It's really the distance part that we've been focusing on. And from the long runs and the higher mileage to making the adjustment to time trialing 1000s instead of 600s and 800s, I think that has really helped me excel in my training. And I I feel like when the time does come for me to compete, which will likely be mid-March-ish is when I'm targeting to have my first meet, I think it's going to pay off. I think I'm really going to be ready to race at that time. Now, where does strength training play a role in your training? Because if Instagram stories are a guide, it seems like you're spending a lot of time doing that as well. Yes, I do. Three days a week. I'm in the gym and uh, it's huge. I think that the strength training has been a really good balance to my distance training on the track. So the strength training and kind of the explosiveness in the weight room helps me maintain those fast twitch muscle fibers and be prepared to sprint uh, as we start getting transitioning to faster things. It's I look at it as the the kind of glue that holds the distance and the sprint together and uh, makes me able to to just kind of jump right back into it and know that the speed will be there when it when when it comes time to do more of the speed endurance pure speed type of stuff. Now, for the trials, do you have specific races that you already have identified that you definitely want to compete in and get the standard in, or is that still in flux? It is still sort of in flux. Uh, I don't believe the new, or maybe please correct me if I'm wrong. Has the new trial schedule been announced yet? 
Obviously, that's important because I remember talking last year when I was talking to Hillary Bohr's coach. I'm like, hey, is he going to go for, is he going to try to do the steeple in the 5K? And they're like, no, because they're on like the same day. So he has to choose. Right. But I would think so many people would do the four and the eight that there's no way they'd put it on the same day. You would hope. I, I mean, that's that's what I would hope. But it hasn't been it hasn't really been done a ton lately. I mean, maybe maybe they will now. I mean, looking at what a thing Mo has done over the past few weeks for Texas A&M indoors, maybe USATF will look at that and say, hey, maybe a four eight double is more feasible. Uh, and I certainly hope to see it, you know, and for me personally, yes, that is a, a goal of mine. I would like to run both the 400 and the 800 at trials and, and try to get a spot on the team in both events. Um, whether that's the, the open eight and maybe a relay spot in the, with the 400, uh, is, is definitely a goal of mine and something I'm targeting going into the Olympic trials. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So how does, you know, cause you have the situation where you have the 800, you have the four by, you have the, the 800, you have the 400, and then you have also have the four by four. So what is the process for setting yourself up for that relay? Yeah. So it's, it's the eight, the four, the four by four, and they have the mixed relay that they're introducing this year too. So I think that the, Olympic team will actually take eight 400 runners because I know they had taken, it used to be six with the three for the open four and then three more in the four by four relay pool. And I think they're going to add two more to that relay pool when you include the mixed relay also, but I don't know for sure on that. Okay. So the, so in the standard for, the women in the 400 is 51.35. Yes. And the 800 is 202.50. Yes. So where do you stand for those? Well, I feel pretty good about my chances in the 800 for sure. I mean, I ran 202.40 something last indoor in 2020. Uh, so I, I feel confident about my ability to qualify for the trials in the eight, the four, I haven't run an open four in a while. I can actually, I'm trying to think when is the last time that I ran an open four? I know I've, I've time trialed it a few times in practice and have gotten pretty close to that mark. Can you count a leg in your four by four? Can you do what every high school athlete does and then count their four by four time as their actual <laughs> 400 time? Cause they get the little running start boost. <laughs> I wish I could. I really wish I, still, I could. That, that's what I do. And I think back to my, my track days in high school, I always quote my four by four best split, not my actual 400 best split. Yeah. I wish I could. Uh, my current best time in the 400 is 5241, I believe. 5241. Yes. And, uh, that was, that's all the way from high school though. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could run a 400 faster than that right now. Uh, but it is yet to be seen. So that's exciting. All right. So how much does that play a part in your 
race scheduling for the spring. Because, like, obviously, if this issue is coming up for the trials, how much of this becomes an issue for every potential meet that you go to in terms of being able to try and do both successfully um, and make sure that you're prepared for both? Right. So that's the flip side of not running indoor is while I've had the opportunity to put in a lot of really good training, when I do open up outdoor, I'll only have really a, a couple of months to get race sharp and prepare for both of those events, be race ready rather for both of those events. Uh, so it's definitely a give and take. And I think that it just means once I start racing, I'll I'll be doing a lot of it and kind of racing myself into shape at that point. I mean, the hope is that I will have put in the foundation in the weight room to quickly build the speed on the track. And then after that, it's a matter of doing race more race-specific modeling and really sharpening into racing shape. Now... Oftentimes I'm talking to people say they're focusing more on the, on the longer distance events and figuring out exactly what kind of shape they're in. Oftentimes come back, comes back to them com- kind of comparing workouts to previous times in their life and how did they race during that period with these shorter events, like the ones that, that you do. And I'll be talking to Abe Alvarado next week as well. Um, how often do you know how fit you are and what times you run because you're able to just time trial it in practice and you know pretty concretely, hey, this is where I'm at, as opposed to, say, maybe someone who's competing in longer distances where there's a certain amount of projection that comes into play? Yeah, uh, time trialing is the is pretty much the only way for me, uh, knowing where I am. It's hard to tell from workouts, from personally for me, for shorter events. Uh, but one of the things that we've done in to break, kind of break up training is con- consistently time trialing. And so doing that has given me, helped me develop a better idea of where my fitness is, uh, certainly. All right. Well, can you tell us how, what was the best time trial so far? <laughs> oh, man. The best time trial so far? Well, I'll say this. So I've been time trialing thousands. I actually haven't time trialed an eight or a four all season just yet. Um, And one of the things my coach likes to do with the time trials is have me time trial under fatigue. So something that has plagued me for almost my entire career is second rounds of races uh, when I look back at the times that I've had to run second rounds, NCAA finals, indoor finals, the second round and in, in at USA's outdoors, that has always been a real struggle for me. I do really well in third rounds. As a matter of fact, I think two of the fastest three times I've ever run have been in third round races. Uh, but the second round has really plagued me. So something we've been trying to do to get this strength to translate to race applicable situations is time trialing under the fatigue of a workout or doing either the day before or even the day of doing a light workout and then trying to rip a time trial. So all of that being said, um, my best 1K time trial to this point was 
245 under, you know, under those conditions. And how do you feel about that? How, how did you and your coach feel when that, when you, when you dropped that? I felt pretty good. Honestly, it made me feel like at this point in the season, because at this point we would be just this time last year, I was getting ready to run the 800 at USA's and um, running that made me feel like I'm ahead of where I was at this time last year when I ran the eight and took fourth at USA indoors. I feel like I'm definitely ahead. And that was a season, an indoor season where I PR'd in the eight by almost half a second. There you go. So you you keep working on those distances, Olivia. Maybe you'll be entering the uh, the mile. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe <laughs> I will race a mile this year. I don't know. All right. Well, this this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all things late twenty twenty, early twenty one. You mentioned that next race on the calendar is mid March. Yes, I think so. It'll be mid, maybe end of March. I'm not one hundred percent sure yet, but definitely before April. Perfect. All right. So we'll talk before then and we'll really dive into exactly like what your training schedule looks like, what you're doing on the track, what you're doing in the weight room, and also talk about mentally how you're preparing for a season after last year where there really wasn't a season. Right. So we'll, we'll dive into all of that. Um, everyone who's listening now stay on because you're going to hear a lot about how Olivia kind of got, you know, kind of got her start in running and then talks about the, the mileage and the training and takes a deep dive into a lot of those things in our July conversation. Olivia, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I can't wait to talk again next month. Thanks so much, Matt. It's always a good time. Hey, folks, the Road to the Trials podcast is presented by Koros Wearables, makers of performance GPS watches that help athletes train to their best. Athletes like world record marathoner Elliot Kipchoge and multi-time U.S. champion Emma Coburn trust Koros watches to track their training from long runs to track workouts with their innovative track mode, which I Frankly, I'm just going to input this. I love their track mode. This is one of the reasons I love these watches. You can measure your next track workout to near perfection, whether you've got 400 meter repeats in lane one or a four mile tempo in lane five. You can trust Coral's watches to provide the stats that you crave. So show your support for the brands that support this podcast and pick up the Pace 2, the latest GPS watch on the market. Enter code trials at checkout on coros.com. That's C O R O S.com for free accessory with your purchase. You can just pick whichever one you like after you enter the code. So when you use the Coros product, you know you're getting a premium watch designed, tested, and perfected by the athlete and for the athlete. Give Coros a follow on Instagram or on Facebook at Coros Global. Coros, explore perfection. Hello, Olivia, and welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's my pleasure. Well, I'll tell you what, I expected to have a lot of conversations with you this spring and summer. It, that it did not end up being the case. You know, that was one of the things where, you know, season two of Road to the Olympic Trials, you had said yes to be a guest on that. It certainly didn't come to fruition. I'm glad I could finally have you on some sort of show because you're such a fascinating person. But, you know, I expected to have like seven conversations with you by this point in 2020. Yeah, me too. I was I was really looking forward to the whole podcast series and yeah, COVID really ruined our plans. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's for sure. Who knows? Maybe we like look on the brighter side of life, right? Maybe who knows? You'll like, you know, continue to kick button training and then you'll be, you know, even more ready to roll for the next year's trials. And, you know, then who knows? Maybe you look back five years later, like, hey, if that hadn't got suspended, then maybe I couldn't have done X, Y, Z. Who knows what the future holds? <laughs> I'm ready for anything at this point. That's for sure. Well, let's talk about the present because you just had a race. You just had an event uh, about a week ago. So can you just tell us exactly what it was, where it was, and how it came about? Because I know with a lot of the meets that are happening now, they're not, you know, they're obviously not super, I wouldn't say super public, but they're not as well known as a, t- as a typical meet would be in a normal a normal year. So just how did the event come off and what was kind of your relationship to to the event itself? Right. So my coach organized it. Um coach D2, Daryl Woodson, but he goes by D2 in track circles. Um he put together these events called the Back to the Track series down at Prairie View AM University, uh, about 40 minutes outside of Houston. And yeah, he just once we once Texas started lifting the COVID-19 restrictions, we were able to secure a location. USATF gave out protocols that we would have to follow in order to um be able to have a USATF sanctioned meet which we are doing between the masks, the social dif- distancing, the temperature checks uh, upon entry and the surveys, we are taking all of those precautions in addition to running in every other lane to remain socially distanced during the race. And yeah, just last week we had a few races, mostly off events, uh, 150, 300, 500. And uh, I think they did a 60 as well. And it was certainly interesting. I mean, especially (laughs) as (laughs) more of an 800 specialist, uh, we weren't, a- or I won't say we weren't able to run an 800. We could run an 800, but it would just have to be a four-turn stagger and only in lanes or for for the first meet, it would have had to been. We're now working on getting COVID tests for everyone so that we can, we don't have to do that four-turn stagger, which sounds awful <laughs> to me. Um, but yeah, so I ran a 500. It felt good to be back on the track. It was quiet. There were no spectators. Um, but all things considered, I feel like I had a pretty good run. I There were two of us in the race, and I, I won the race and ran 110.23, I think it was. And, you know, it just felt good to be back out there again and, and competing. It's been so long. I haven't run a race since USA's in February, so... I, I was just happy to be back out there feeling pretty fit and, and getting back into the swing of things for what will likely be a short outdoor season. So the, the four turn stagger, I feel like if you were in lane eight and a four turn stagger, it would almost be like you got like only had to run like, like basically like one and a half laps. You'd be so far out from everybody else. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, uh, even if I was in lane five and my competitor was in lane eight, I can't imagine mentally what that would be like competing against someone who's starting, who visually is starting that far ahead of you. Uh, I imagine that it would just feel like a, a regular time trial at that point. 
Well, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the person who's like, you know, would, would feel like 70 meters back or the person who's 70 meters ahead, who's so far ahead that they could actually like see you or like when they're finishing their turn, like, the, you know, that, that, you know, that, that first turn on the backstretch, you know, and be like, wow, like, am I doing well here? Or am I supposed to be like a whole turn ahead of this person? Right. Um, well, both definitely have their challenges because if you're on the inside, you have a better idea of when you're hitting each 200. Uh, but at least on the outside, you may be way ahead, but you don't have to worry about the mentally difficult task of seeing someone that far out ahead of you and wanting to make up the ground right away. So I, I think I would have to go with the lane eight there. <laughs> there you go. All right. So you ran you had 110. You know, and one ten and change, which is what roughly fifty four second quarter pace. Yeah, a little slower. Like I think my coach clocked me at fifty five five through the quarter. Okay, so how did how does that again? Obviously, a five hundred meter race is atypical to say the least. With that said, how did you feel about the race and your fitness and all that? Um, I felt good. Yeah, I it was hard to gauge where exactly my fitness would be, was would be. Um, after the last few months, uh, we've only been back on the track now for about, let's see, today is July 28th. So we've been back on the track only for about five weeks now. So it was really hard to get an idea of where my fitness would be, especially from a speed perspective. Cause once we lost the track and the gym for that matter, at the same time, in uh, mid-March, the really the only thing that we could resort to was was building base again. So I didn't have a good idea of where my speed was going to be when I, I stepped out to race again. So it felt good to get out there to be able to go through 400 pretty well in 55 and and finish strong. I I feel like my my speed is in a good place. Uh, now it's time to up the distance a little bit and see where that strength is. So what was your training looking like in the previous, I guess the two months before you got back on the track five weeks ago? Yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of distance. Um, my weeks were mostly, I had tempos two days a week on the grass, uh, workouts two days a week on this. We have this cricket field coach uses it in the fall. Um, but it is a, it's a, and kind of almost circular cricket field on this slanted grass hill. And every time you go around it, you have to go down and then up again. And it's, it's just under 400 meters. Coach won't tell us the exact distance, but I imagine that it's somewhere between 390 and 400. And that's what we use to get, to do most of our workouts in the fall. Uh, so during the week I was having two workouts on the, on that grass loop, uh, two tempos on grass soccer fields. And then the rest of it was just runs maybe two or three times a week. I would have a, a long run and yeah, just, just building up the base. It was more miles than I have ever run <laughs> before. So I'm, I'm excited about cashing in on that. I, I want to really see where I am. All right. Two questions for you. All right. So what, what kind of mileage were you putting in? And when an 800 meter runner 
says they're doing a tempo run. What exactly does that look like? <laughs> okay. So the mileage that I was putting in uh, was not very much. We're talking like 15 miles a week uh, pre-COVID era. Once COVID hit and we were on the grass and kind of running, I think that up to 20 to 30, probably 30 was the, the most I got to in a single week. But yeah, usually in the 20 to 30 range. Um, and when I say tempo, uh, that's either when I mean, when I say tempo workout, I mean something in the range of maybe like five by 800 or five by one K. Um, or I even got to a point where I could do a few repeat miles. Uh, and when I say tempo run, I mean no more than three miles, but uh, usually around six minute pace for a, a three mile tempo, six minutes or better is the goal. Now, this is so interesting to me. So I had Rebecca Mara on the show a couple months ago, and she's a miler. And she was talking about how her coach is Lauren Fleshman. And they take, uh, again, you guys don't have the same event. So I'm not, this is not an apples to apples comparison, but it's so interesting to see how different people approach events that aren't completely dissimilar because they're, she was putting in 70 ish, 70 to 80 mile weeks with like one really hard session, I think during, during a certain building phase, but even when she was getting ready for competition, she might go to the track like two times a week, but was doing a ton of aerobic work which is really interesting. I know for the mile, I think it's like 87% aerobic, 13% anaerobic. I remember seeing that stat somewhere. And it's so interesting to see how your training is very, you know, is very different. Is that the, the stats you just gave me, is that typical for you? Or is that just kind of like how COVID turned it out to be? Uh, the 15 to 20 miles a week is, is actually pretty typical for me. And uh, but before I go on to that, I got to give some props to Rebecca Mara. I know you said she's more of a miler, but let's not forget that she was she was in the eight hundred uh, final at USA's last year. Um, and she just kicked butt in the one k. She did you see the one k she did like three weeks ago? Yeah, absolutely. She's got some speed on her. Let's let's not discount that. <laughs> right. I mean, all the more reason then to compare and contrast the styles because obviously you got a lot of speed on you too, and it's so interesting how your trainings. Your training systems are so different. Yeah. Yeah, no, very different. Um, I don't know what I would run in a mile right now, but I'm sure Becca Merritt would have me by by quite a bit <laughs> at this point in time. All right. So let's let's talk about your how you're training and how that works for you, especially in light of what we just mentioned. So when you talk about how, you know, doing far less mileage than say maybe a miler would do potentially, right? Not every miler is the same or anything like that. What about your training aligns itself with your particular, you know, your talents or what you bring to the table as a runner or just even how you've trained over time? Maybe maybe this is just a way of balancing out what you've done in the past, but how does this particular method work best for you? Well, I think my strength in the 800 really comes from my speed, especially having a 400 background, being primarily a 400 runner uh, until my sophomore year of college. Uh, having that speed has been something that I've, that has really been an asset to me. And I found that in the times that I did go up in mileage, um, 
a little bit too much or have a long run that was just a little bit too far, it caused me to get injured or I would have hiccups in my training. So we found that a system that has a lot of mileage really wasn't one that was working for me uh, in the past. Not that I not that I can't do more miles, but one that would would really be high mileage would be uh, could run the risk of me getting injured more. So there's that, and then also, I think that just you know I I hope one day to to maintain enough speed or, or gain enough speed to earn a spot on that four by four on a world team or maybe who knows maybe even the Olympic team. I'm not afraid to put that out there, but yeah, I, that would that would be a really cool thing to do, I think, and I I, I would love to do it. And is training for the 800 and 400 simultaneously an optimal double or is the training a little bit different for both of those and maybe not something that you can necessarily do and peak for simultaneously? Ooh, <laughs> that's a question more for my coach. But if I had to answer it, I think that I think that you can train for both. I think that more of the uh, peaking issue at least for me, has been mental. Like something that I found to be difficult, especially being in the professional running arena where I don't get to run as many races in a season as I did in, say, high school and college. It is mentally harder to switch back and forth between the paces. I even notice it in practice when we're training race modeling for an eight and then I race an eight and then I have a four the next week, say, and coach says, okay, we need to, or maybe not the next week, maybe two weeks later. And coach says, okay, now we need to race model for the four. I need you to snap back into the 400 mindset. Uh, I've noticed that going back and forth has been on my body has been very, has been the biggest challenge of pursuing both events is really understanding and being able to to hold both paces in my muscle memory at the same time, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And when you talk about the mindset shift, how would you categorize the mindset for each event? Well, as a as more of a strength-based 400 runner and a speed-based 800 runner, I think that the mindset going into a 400 is always more, I know my strength is in the finish. So I, I go in telling myself I need to hit my paces. For me, that's around 24 seconds, uh, 24 flat at 200, and then finish strong uh, in a 400. In the 800, I have to shift and tell myself, okay, my strength is my speed, so I really need to get out now in an eight. You know, I need to be at least... 58 seconds through 400, or I run the risk of really getting, getting caught, getting eaten up on the back end. So I think that the, the shift really for me comes in the first 200, going from 24 second pace through 200 to 28 second pace uh, for the 800 is really where I need to be able to do, to hit both of those smoothly. And, um, be able to shift back and forth uh, cleanly. 
and both of those races can just be, I mean, shoot, every race can be brutal. I shouldn't say, yeah, basically, unless it's like a hundred meter race, like basically besides that, every race can be brutal in its own, in its own way. Um, in regards to the 400 and 800, where does it really set in for you where you mentally have to say, okay, this is the spot where I need to make sure that I'm not giving in. I'm not giving into my body or mind uh, and I can you know, push through this and potentially even speed up if I'm really kind of stick to my guns. Where, where usually do you find those spots in each of those races? It's definitely a little bit over halfway for both of them. <laughs> Honestly, in the 800, it is right with 300 to go. Uh, in the 400, it's right around 150 to go is when I really start to feel myself tying up. And yes, it, it's exactly like what you said. I have to mentally tell myself to stay in it, to, to keep pushing, because there definitely is a moment of doubt, like, oh no, did I go out too fast? I'm tying up, I'm tired, am I going to make it? And then I have to, like you said, steal my resolve and say, yes, you are going to make it, you are going to do this. Yeah, Finish strong, dial in focus. And you've done these races so many times. Does it still feel the same now as it did five to eight years ago when, again, making the apples to apples, apples to apples comparison of you're going as hard as you can, right? You're not holding anything back. You're trying to completely max out your fitness. Does it still feel the same way now as it did back then? It does. Yes. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe I just haven't figured it out yet, but I don't know how people just walk off the track like they're not tired after races. I mean, I've noticed in, in a lot of great runners in four, eight mile and, and, and up that they, they cross the finish line and everyone's breathing heavily and tired, of course, but a lot of, a lot of top athletes are able to just walk off the track without bending over as though it's it's not that hard <laughs> and i admire that in them that they're able to make it look easy i on the other hand have not figured that out yet i think in in a lot of my finishes in races you've probably you can probably see that on video that i am just as tired as i've always been in high school and have not quite figured out how to play it off yet. <laughs> well, I can relate to that. I don't think I have ever had a good-looking finishing photo in any race at any distance. Um, so I can I can relate to that feeling for sure. I'm I'm the kind of everyone everyone looks different when they finish or when they get extremely fatigued. I'm like I'm a Pez dispenser. I'm one of those like head goes all the way back type oh, type no. fatigue runners. <laughs> yeah, it does. It never looks good. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. So, so many of our listeners are dedicated amateur runners, right? They're not a professional. They didn't run, they didn't do elite college track and, and things of that nature. However, one thing that binds runners of all abilities is getting through that pain point or that, you know, as, as I often say on this podcast is like that last 3%, right? And oftentimes you only, that you know, you yourself was the only one that knows how you reacted when your body got to that last 3% and whether you gave in even just a little bit or you're able to push through and no matter what your time is, say, hey, man, like I just I put in everything there. Like I gave it all I had and there's no regrets. Again, no matter what the time is or what the finishing place is, 
when you have had those experiences and you've really reached to every little bit that you have in you, what was the differentiator? What about that performance allowed you to get through that point as opposed to maybe some other races? And you can give an example if you like, where maybe, again, maybe you're the only one that knew it, but you know that you just didn't quite tap into everything you had. Yeah. I would say that the key there is don't hesitate, is what I would say. I think we, we talked about a moment ago how the when you get to that point, there's almost a decision that needs to be made to keep pushing, to keep going, and to refocus. And I think for me, my best races have been when I don't even have to make that decision. When I get to 300 meters to go in the 800, and it's a close race, and it's a fast race, and everyone is there, and everyone is grinding. Instead of thinking about how am I going to push myself through? I'm just thinking about keeping up with the person next to me, not letting them get away. And I find that when I'm in those competitive situations uh, where I don't have to make that decision is, is really when I'm at my best. And that's something that I've worked on in training too, is the, the whole don't hesitate when I'm by myself. Because uh, in those hard practices, we get to a point where there are definitely points in the hard practices where, especially on the watch, coach will say five minutes rest and I'll see him maybe talking to one of my training partners and I'll be watching my watch and I'm like, oh, four and a half minutes have already passed. You know, I really could use an extra 30 seconds here. But but no, sometimes you just have to you have to say, hey, coach, you know, time's up. I got to I got to get on this. I got to stay in this workout. I can't afford to to hesitate to take an extra couple an extra 30 seconds in this workout because I won't be able I won't be able to have the time to make that decision in a race I want it to just be there naturally and um there have definitely been some races in my career where I have where I've hesitated where I've had to make that decision even if only for a split second where I, I lost focus or the pain came in and I grimaced and thought, ah, oh, I'm not going to make it, where I had to dial back in. And I want to get to a point in training where that doesn't happen, whether there's competition right on me or not, whether, the, whether I'm at the U.S. final or at the, the Prairie View Invitational where I'm, where I'm only racing against one other person. I, I want to be able to to not hesitate in my races. And I think that's the key to really pushing through when you reach that that turning point moment. In those races, the 400 and 800, you know, you're redlining for a significant portion or percentage of that race. And that's something that a lot of runners who say who listen to this, they may be marathoners and they don't get they don't really experience that. Right, their fatigue uh, is kind of a different sort. However, there's a large, you know, large portion of people who listen to these that are 5K runners, and while they might not be on the edge for 60% of their race necessarily, but they might be there for a considerable period of time in a 5K. And what has been your experience about managing, not managing, I guess, is learning to understand what that edge feels like and how much more. 
um, I guess what, how much more potential you have in that space than maybe you, than maybe you realize when you're younger or less experienced or just not used to running in significant discomfort. Oof. <laughs> it's, it's tough. I got to say, I, I empathize with the 5k runners. I mean, I'm not a 5k runner myself, but I do actually run one, uh, once a year. I actually open up, I guess, I wouldn't call it opening up my season, but usually about a month or so into fall training, like at the end of September, my town, South Orange, hosts a 5K. It's called the Newstead 5K. I've been running it almost almost every year since I was eight. I think, what was I doing last year during, oh, the season was super long last year, so I didn't run it. My last actual race, uh, the USA versus the match USA versus Europe was September. I want to say it was September 8th or 9th last year. And so I was actually still in my off period when and this is South Stead- Orange, New Jersey. Yes, this is South Orange, New Jersey. Uh, and I was still in my off period when the Newstead 5k came up. So I didn't, I didn't run it last year, but most years since I, most Almost every year since I was eight, I ran the Newstead 5K. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure out myself how to handle that. I, I nicknamed the race Prolonged Pain because it's exactly like what you said. <laughs> it's like a mile in, I am feeling it. And I instead of having 300 meters to go, I have 2.1 more miles to get through. And it just hurts. <laughs> but I think I, I would say that in a in a 5K, and especially a town 5K like that, it's fun to to really to latch on to someone. And I know in in races you can find yourself kinda and especially in a 5K, wavering a bit. I know I definitely do after that first mile, wondering, oh man, did I get out too fast? Uh, but the moment that someone who didn't run the first mile as fast as I did passes me, uh, I'm, I'm really able to latch onto that and, and keep going. And granted, I don't know if I'm the best person to be giving 5k advice, but that is how I handle the prolonged pain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's something that you have to deal with so often just with, you know, again, the 800 and the 400, um, I'm not going to compare myself to you. So let me just make that abundantly clear. I'm not comparing myself to you. You're an elite level runner. But I remember, you know, the 400 was my race in high school. And again, for for my talent level, I was running like hopefully like, you know, as, as so many other people do as hard as I could possibly run. And I just remember that feeling of just, hey, you're just you're on the edge. And you're and for me, it was never quite knowing how much gas you ever had in the tank until you, I guess you pushed it too far. And you, oftentimes you hear people, you know, no matter, no matter their distance that they pursue, whether it's again, the 400 meters runners to ultra marathoners, right. Who have, you know, time and time again, come back from the brink and continue racing and they can go to the brink and continue racing. And just that experience of how much can you give, how much do you left you have in the tank, and that's just something that I feel like for amateur runners, we're constantly trying to figure that out for ourselves. But maybe, you know, not getting as quite, not getting as as close to that line 
as maybe someone like yourself does who you know does this you know if not for a living but does it at the highest level possible and has so much experience doing it yeah it's it's hard <laughs> it's really hard to find that i think i mean i've been running track since i was 8 years old and i think that's something that helped me find that gear it was just getting into some really good competitions, matching up with people who were really evenly matched with me and who would push me all the way to the line. Whenever I would go a little bit faster, they would go a little bit faster. And I think that for for an amateur runner, if you can find a race or find people who are around your, your skill level, then that could really help you and help the other person at that discover just how far you can go. All right. When 2020 began, and I don't know if you're someone who sets out beginning of the year with certain goals and, you know, all the things that have, you know, potentially could come down, come your way in the new year. But let's just go back to that time. If you were going to, you know, pick up a pen and you were going to write down your goals for the year, what were some of the things that you were hoping to do in 2020? Right. The ultimate goal, of course, was to to medal at the Olympics. Uh, the plan, and then I guess backing backing up from there, the steps along the way. Of course, in order to get to the Olympics, you have to qualify, place top three at the Olympic trials. And I was actually hoping, with the way that the schedule is structured this year, to run both the 400 and the 800 at the Olympic trials. I was going to run the 400, which was the first three days, and then there are three days in between in, in the schedule. And then the 800 takes place over the last four days. And I was, I was hoping to run the four and the eight. I was gonna, I wanted to place top three in the 800, of course, to make the team. And I was also hoping to secure a relay spot in the open 400. And uh, I, I really thought that was within reach, especially with the addition of the mixed four by four to the Olympics. So now they take uh, eight people instead of six from the Olympic trials. I felt like I had a, a pretty decent shot at attempting that goal. Um, but yeah, that was that was the main goal for for 2020. It was to get after that. Uh, and if I make comment on it further, I think that I'd really like to see some more people get after it. I think that there's a lot of talent right now in the 800, in the women's 800 and the men's 800 for that matter. But I think that there are a lot of female 800 runners with the 400 speed to to compete in the open four. And I, I wish more people would be open to at least trying something like that. And when you were thinking about the steps needed to medal at the Olympics and to be um, part of that team in a, you know, in a couple of different capacities, what were some of the benchmarks that you felt you needed to hit to set yourself up for that kind of success? Well, the fence posts are definitely moving since 50.3 and 159.5 or 159.4 made the team in 2016. So I I believe that yeah the <laughs> the fence posts are moving in the that one fifty nine 
almost certainly will not make the Olympic team, in my opinion, in the 800 this, or it would not have this year. Uh, honestly, that we have such a competitive field in the women's 800 right now that I could imagine a scenario where someone runs 159 and doesn't even make it out of the semifinal. Um, just that that's a testament to how deep the field was. So the benchmarks along the way definitely would have had to consistently be able to run 50 point low in the 400. And I would say under 158 in the 800 to make that team. Uh, Certainly lofty goals, but not ones that I was afraid to chase this year. And what were the things that you and your coach felt like you needed to do from a training and strength and, you know, and every other thing that goes into being a high level runner that you need to do to get to those benchmarks? I think that the, or our, the philosophy that coach had uh, approaching this was that I needed to get really strong, like an endurance strong on, on the track and in my workouts. And then I needed to get my speed, get really physically strong in the weight room. And so essentially get the endurance on the track, get the speed part in the weight room. And then as we got closer to competition time, really start getting into more specific work uh, for both the 400 and 800. Uh, I think that was, that was the trajectory that we were, we were working on in March before all of, uh, before all of the lockdowns happened. All right. So post lockdown, say like even right now, what are some of the things that you and your coach are doing? Um, not only in terms of your day-to-day training, but figuring out when and how to peak? Yes, that is a tricky question. I think we actually haven't really talked about it for next season just yet. Right now, I'm, I'm just focused on making it to the end of this season, maybe putting down or at least trying to see where my fitness is after this unusual COVID block of training and going into next year. I, I'm not sure. Actually, we will have to figure that out over the summer. And what were you able to do uh, when, during the lockdown phase in terms of getting yourself to be a stronger runner? You know, obviously you weren't able to, you know, have the kind of, you know, you were able to have the kind of workouts either on the track or off the track that you would ideally like to have during that time. So what were some of the key things that you focused on? Definitely the long runs. I saw a great improvement in my long run. I think I posted on my Instagram about a month ago that before the lockdown, my longest long run was six miles and I could only do it at 7.30 pace. And by the end of the lockdown, 12 weeks later, I had run 10 miles and I could do it at 7.12 pace. So I, I saw really big improvements in my long run. And I think a part of that also has to do with also seeing improvements in my tempos. Um, I had never tempoed past reps of 1Ks going into the quarantine, and I was able to do repeat miles by the end of it. So. 
just kind of slowly working my way up to being able to handle more in my long runs and in my tempos was a major key to to gaining strength over the course of the over the course of the quarantine. I love that. All right, let's go back in time. So when you you were a decorated high school athlete, you're a 400 meter runner at the time. When you were thinking about where you wanted to run in college and get a, get an education in college, what brought you to Stanford? It was just the best combination of academics and athletics. I I knew that I wanted to go to a school that was was very academically strong, and also one that had a team that I could com- that had goals and aspirations of of competing with the best on the NCAA level. And and Stanford fit the bill one hundred percent. I with the from a perspective of academic excellence, and then I saw as well excellence on the track. Yeah, I mean they dominate in Olympic sports. You know, shoot, just about all of them, right? I mean, if you're an Olympic sport athlete, forget just even track. Um, you really can't do worse. Uh, or I just say you can't do worse. Can't do better than Stanford in that regard. <laughs> so that that makes a lot of sense. And when you were thinking about just from the education perspective, you know, what about you know what were you hoping to pursue post college and post track? Even you know, assuming that at that time that track was going to continue post college, um, that you wanted to pursue from an academic standpoint to set yourself up for a potential career down the line. I was hoping to. Or I came in, I'll say I came into college as a pre-med. I wanted to, and still want to, go to med school, become a doctor. Um, In high school, I was certain that I was going to be a neurosurgeon. As I've been exposed to more of the fields of medicine, I still think neurosurgery is cool, but I could see myself being interested in a lot of other topics as well. And... I yeah, I came into Stanford hoping to to pursue a degree that would would lead me in that direction. I know during freshman fall and and my first year uh I got to try out a lot of different things from from engineering to math to English. Stanford actually doesn't even let their students do the human biology which ended up being my eventual major. But they have this thing called the human biology core that you have to take before you can declare yourself as a human biology major. And you're not even allowed to take it until your sophomore year. So I, I remember during freshman year, I, my eyes were open to a lot of the different things that you can, you can do <laughs> that I hadn't even considered before. I, I got to learn, like I said, engineering, English, computer science. But eventually I, I did settle back into the pre-med track and, and decide that I do still want to go to medical school and, and become a doctor in my future. So when you graduated from college and you had to make the decision of, okay, what to do next? What do I want to pursue? I got all of these options, both athletic and you know, within the medical space. You're coming from Stanford, you know, and you're a, certainly a very bright person. You had a lot of options. So what was the decision-making process then in terms of what you wanted to pursue right out of college? And what is the decision-making process now, considering that everything is so in flux, the state of track and field is kind of like a who-knows situation, and everything got postponed by at least a year? Right. 
I, whew. well, coming out of college, I just, I realized that I still loved running and I felt like I, I, and I feel not just felt, I feel like I still have a lot in the tank. And one of the, one of my main goals with running and one of my dreams has always been to, to medal at the Olympics. And considering that I didn't make the team in, in 2016 and I graduated in 2018 with 2020, just two years away, it, it made a lot of sense to at least pursue running for two more years through the Olympics. And so at the graduating college, I decided that I was going to commit to running for two more years. And then in 2020, I would really make a decision on whether or not I was going to continue running or go into med school. So in, in 2018, I took my MCATs. They, those test scores are good for three to five years, depending on the, in, depending on the schools I choose to apply to. And you don't want to take those again. That's for sure. I do not. <laughs> I'd, I'd be willing, but I do not want to. But that time limit means that I have to, or I'll say I have to matriculate within three years of taking those those tests. Or in some oh, cases, so I you can't defer. even defer your acceptance. Well, I can. I can. I can defer. Okay. But I have to. I have to at least apply. So for a lot of schools, I have to apply this year, or my MCAT scores will expire and I won't be able to apply to those schools next year. And I was hoping that sitting here in July of 2020, the Olympic trials would have been in June and I would have been sitting in July either as an Olympian getting ready or at this point today, I, <laughs> I would have been at the Olympics prayerfully in Tokyo because they would have had the opening ceremonies just a few days ago. And I imagine myself, but in general, sitting in July, knowing whether I, or not I had become an Olympian and being prepared to make a decision on medical school. Unfortunately, I am sitting in July and I don't know whether or not I'm going to be an Olympian and I still need to make that decision on medical school. And the decision I've made right now is to go ahead and submit my application and kind of see what my options are, see what my acceptances look like in at the end of the year, December, January, when they start uh, offering acceptances and, and really evaluate. I don't see myself, if I do get accepted to somewhere, I would definitely have to defer because most med schools start classes in July and now this plans year on right <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would have to ideally uh or at the earliest I would enter in 2022 after the world championships in Eugene but we will see I mean I decided to go ahead and apply and just keep my options open I mean no guarantees that I'll even decide to go into med school in 2022. But, but yeah, I, I am really just in a kind of wait and see point where I'm laying out all of my options on the table to, to evaluate towards the end of the year. 
And what's it like for you as an unsponsored athlete, but someone who at the same time views running in the Olympics as a realistic goal and seeing athletes that you compete against being sponsored? Like, what, what's that process like for you in terms of not only um, making it a financially viable decision to run at this level, but also just the behind the scenes stuff in terms of like who gets sponsorship, who doesn't, and what kind of back and forth goes with, with attaining something like a deal that you would want with the company that you would want to work with. It's, um, it is interesting. I, you know, at the moment I, I leave most of that to my agent. Uh, I just try to get out there every day and, and control the factors that I can control, get out there and, and run fast times, let the companies know that, that I'm a world contender and, and that I'm, you know, world, world team can, an international contender rather. Um, and that I can, I really can do some, some pretty incredible things. I have big goals, but they're not out of reach. And yeah, I, I, I just leave it to, to my agent to look at, to look out for me and, and take the, you know, forward me the opportunities as they come. But, but yeah, I mean, I have no ill will towards those who are, who are getting sponsored right now. I'm, I'm happy for a lot of the 800 runners who are getting sponsored. And, uh, I do hope to be one of them soon, but we'll see. All right. Last question before we get going. First of all, thank you so much for coming on, having this this you know your this frank conversation about so many things, and it's just so much fun to talk to you. When you are going through moments like this, where obviously this you can't really compare this to, to previous moments in terms of athletic life, but <laughs> um, you know, it's just right now or at any point in your life, and you know, for, for even going back to Stanford and you know, being a student athlete in college, you know, certainly has its ups and downs. What are some of the things that you do or people that you look at or what have you that get you motivated and inspired to be your best athletic self? Well, I think one of the first people I, I look at actually is Jill Miles Clark. I, I look at what she did back in the nine in the nineties. Um, you know, she's, one of the only ones in the world to in the same year go sub 50 sub 157 in the four and the eight and i mean i think i said it before i feel like there are a lot of 800 runners who have the talent to do that if they should so pursue it but i she's really a huge inspiration for me uh it's always inspiring watching her run I think she approached it. She would always say in her interviews, at least earlier on, uh, before she transitioned to more primarily an 800 runner, uh, that she was a 400 runner who just ran the 800 for strength. And I found that pretty funny <laughs> when she was running 158s and 157s just for strength for her 400. But she's definitely um, someone that I've I've looked to I've watched videos and clips and and observed in the over the past year to uh that has helped me stay motivated and and keep pursuing this goal. Absolutely. Olivia, 
Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I'm glad we finally got to do this, and it has been my pleasure as well. This was a fun conversation. Olivia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a always a treat to talk to you. Good luck moving forward. Can't wait to catch up again in a couple weeks. Also, shout out to Coros. I love my Coros watch. If you're looking for a new, G- new GPS watch, you can't go wrong by checking out Coros. Got to use the code as well to get some free, some free swag in addition to that. But I'll tell you what, with the Coros watch, if you're listening to this, then you run on a track. On occasionally or once or twice a week. And there's nothing better than the Coros Watch track mode. It really dials it in where so many GPS watches just can't be trusted on track. They just can't handle it, but Coros absolutely can. So thank you so much for listening. In two days, our next podcast on the Road of the Trials podcast will be out. And that one is with Abe Alvarado. And that will finish out the roster. That will be the last intro episode of the beginning of this season. So I can't wait to can't wait to share my conversation with Abe. Just a fascinating guy. Really, really um, different background than you're going to see from a lot of people. You know, he ran at a high level, and you'll hear all of this in two days when the podcast gets released. But I'll just give you a little sneak preview. He ran at BYU for, you know, that team is legit. Just like Olivia ran at Stanford running at BYU. It's that same sort of feel. Like, these are elite programs, but he didn't start out at BYU. Uh, you know, he transferred there and he he was a late bloomer in high school as well. Um, and thanks to, you know, one of the best people in running, Diljeet Taylor, you know, Abe was able to get a couple different shots and boy, did he make the most of it. So anyway, not gonna, not going to do the whole Abe Alvarado intro during the, during the Olivia Baker outro, but needless to say, obviously I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution. Never